Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center. And joining me is my coworker and colleague, Matt Simmons, Staff Attorney at EPIC. Hey, Matt. Hey, Tom. And we are joined by a very special guest, Melody Meyer, who is an attorney who specializes in Indian law and an enrolled member of Pueblo of Laguna. Hi, Tom. Hey. And so we are talking about this thing, land back. You may have heard of it before. You may have seen it as a hashtag and not known what it is. So we're, we're going to try to explain what's going on with this land back movement and also how it relates to environmental conservation and why I believe, personal opinion, opinion of EPIC, the organization I'm an executive director of, why land back is consistent with and should be part of our movement as environmentalists. So... Melody, let's talk about the history of colonization in California or in the West Coast. Because land back, this idea that we should give land back to the indigenous people who were originally here, is intimately related with the the land being taken from them. So let's talk a little bit more about this. Yeah, so I think it is important to give that context because the history of colonization in America is pretty brutal, pretty violent anywhere you go. But coming from a different tribe and then moving to California, I've kind of always felt like California's history is particularly like violent and brutal. I think what makes that true is combined with the like violent genocide and deliberate removal of indigenous people from their homes and their territories is we see a lot of like really destructive environmental changes to the land. So there's like a lot of logging in California, a lot of overfishing because a lot of the tribes, especially in the Pacific Northwest, relied on salmon as a primary source of their diet. There was just a lot of destruction of the habitat that California tribes depended on for food. And so I think that combined with, as I said, like the systematic slaughter of Native people to make way for things like gold mining or white settlers coming in. This idea of tribes as their own governments, as their own nations, was very nearly like wiped out. And so on top of that, we saw the federal government in the late 1800s was terminating tribe status as Native nations, which meant that they were removing tribes' federal recognition. And once you lose that federal status, you don't get resources from the federal government. You don't have a designated reservation area. So that's why we see so many tribes in California don't have a lot of reservations because on top of being removed, they also lost this sort of status of being recognized by the federal government as a Native nation. So yeah, that's that's kind of a background of of what happened to tribes in California. And we see that example here locally with our, our tribes in the Humble Bay area. We see a deliberate genocide of the Weop people by the colonizers of Humble Bay, including a slaughter on Talawat Island during a world renewal ceremony. Very very literal attempts at, at genocide, which is which is a hard and shameful part of our history as as Californians. And it is a perpetuation of violence that has extended beyond just individual instances of slaughter of, of individuals. It is a history of trying to break up whatever structures remained of tribal life, of terminating tribes, as you said, 
of trying to send people away to boarding schools. It, it, is, it is part of one of America's shameful things in our history that we need to, we can't make it right, but we, we, we can do something to, to make it better. We can do something to recognize the history of violence perpetrated by the United States government, by the California government, and by individual colonizers of our area. So I, I imagine that from the from the beginning, going across the ocean, European colonizers landing in the Americas, almost from the beginning of native lands being forcibly dispossessed from their original inhabitants, there has been an attempt to get back this land and to try to reassert tribal sovereignty, tribal control over this land. Is that true? I, I guess it is the roots of land back. Land back has this like movement, you know, hashtag land back. It, it's an old history of this. This isn't like a new idea among Native American activists. This is part of this decade, centuries of activism by Native American activists to, to reassert their existence, right? Right, yeah. I think it's it's definitely been around for a while. And like a lot of social movements, I think land back as like a phrase has really been picked up by younger activists. It's really popular on social media right now. But I do think it's it's always been there. And especially throughout the, the 1960s and 70s with the Red Power Movement and the American Indian Movement, it's it's definitely been in the background. I think one of the reasons why is because it's sort of been a really powerful iteration of what tribal sovereignty is or what indigenous liberation is. And when we're talking about tribal sovereignty, I think we're discussing this inherent right to govern your own lands and to have a place for your people and to have a relationship with those lands. I think that's the way a lot of Native people describe it is land cares for you and you care for the land. And then when we talk about indigenous liberation, it's really about shedding this oppressive structure that U.S. imperialism and colonization has put upon tribes, especially those who are displaced. And we're, we're seeing tribes fight for a place for their people to really thrive and to be made whole again. And I think that's becoming such a popular thing because it's coinciding with this realization of what a climate crisis means. We're seeing like really tangible effects from that right now. And a lot of people are wanting to do something about it. And I think it's seen as a potential solution to what we're facing. Native people have known how to live sustainably they have knowledge, specific knowledge to the regions that they're in. And I think a lot of youth within tribes are pushing their leaders to stop relying on oil and gas and to push for a more sustainable future that incorporates all these technologies that we have nowadays. And one other thing I think that is making it such a relevant thing for folks today is we're seeing critical theory and education on colonization paying off. So a lot of folks are now realizing like, oh yeah, the United States is, is not so great the way that things started. And maybe we should be supporting tribes and not treating them as, as second-class citizens. So I, I think 
we're seeing all the hard work of tribes paying off too. As you've said, decades of struggle is finally coming into fruition. I Just a comment on the education piece. So I grew up in California and I got like the California curriculum on our state's history. And at least when I was a kid, every single third grader was taught about the native peoples of their area. Not super well, I'll have to say, because in my area, the tribe where I grew up wasn't federally recognized, so they didn't get taught about. We got taught about the closest federally recognized tribe, which was hundreds of miles away. And then in fourth grade, you learn about the gold rush and how great that was. And those two things are taught as two separate events that had nothing to do with each other, when in fact the gold rush was the precipitating event for so much of our state's terrible history. We also have the mission curriculum that's required and the role of those earlier settlers into this area and the, the work to, I, I hate to say it, the, the old kill the Indian, save the man idea behind behind a lot of that missionary work. So so we we have this example. We're, we're, we're trying to get land back, as you said, Melody. It It is a reconceptualization, at least for someone like myself, a white American, the role of land to people, that this idea that having this land, this land that has been within a tribe since the beginning of time, that having that land back makes the people whole again, that there is a spiritual relationship between physical land and the well-being of the universe, the well-being of, of a tribe, well-being of an individual. It, it, is, it is a unique way of thinking about the land that is not, not something I grew up with either, but it it is... I think resonant also, though, within the larger environmental community, this conception, reconception of how we relate to the land. This is part, has been part of the larger environmental movement for for decades since the beginning. We've tried to redefine the land ethic and see ourselves as a component of the land instead of a people with dominance over it. So let, let's get kind of to almost a dumb, overly specific question, but like, what is land back then? Like, the, the land exists. What what does it mean to have land back? Are, are we talking about changing just the legal title on something? Or is it is it a broader idea of increased sovereignty of a tribal nation over an area? How would you define the conception of land back? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, actually, because I think for many federally recognized tribes, it's it's almost, like, necessary to play the game of like private property, like what title is the United States going to recognize? And for most tribes, that's going to be legal title. And so one way that tribes do that is by purchasing the land. Another way is through co-management agreements. That's something that's been really popular in recent years. One of the big ones was co-management over Bears Ears National Monument. For our region, one of the things that the Yurok tribe has been working towards is to have co-management authority over Stone Lagoon. So that's within the tribe's ancestral territory, and they just made an agreement with state parks to run that visitor center. And now they're able to have visitors come in and see the that area, that park, through Yurok history, through a Yurok lens, apply Yurok language to those places, so I think it can look, and it sort of phases, right? So kill management will eventually give way to tribes just having ownership and regulatory authority over areas. 
And in other ways, it's sometimes just easier to purchase the land for people who either don't want it anymore or are sympathetic to the Yurok tribe and, and want to see it be under Yurok tribe's control because the Yurok tribe has been very good at doing all of this habitat restoration work and really becoming experts in that field. The idea of co-management is is an exciting one. How how would you define co-management? What it, what does that mean if let's say state parks own some property? Does does that mean that the Yurok tribe for Stone Lagoon or, or elsewhere where you have a co-management agreement, does that mean that you you are kind of an equal to state parks and how that land should be managed? Yeah, it really depends on the on the agreement. And for a lot of people, I think it helps them understand why tribes should be treated as their own sovereign nations because what you're doing is you're creating agreement between two governments and they're negotiating over, well, I'm going to be responsible for this part of managing the park and you can be responsible for this. And it, it, I think it just depends on, on both the capacity of tribes and also what the state is willing to to give to the tribe to to have control over and and that's a problem too because if you if you're a tribe that's not federally recognized how are you going to have the funding or capacity to to manage a state park so it, it that's another thing that is is really tough and we have to think about what can we do to make it easier for tribes who are have been dispossessed to have more of that control and authority over their ancestral territories so it sounds like there's two different cool parts about co-management. One is just the ability to manage land that you have historically managed for millennia. And so it breeds a closer relationship to the land itself. The other is, maybe this is a wonkier one, but this is like a government-to-government perspective where there is more recognition, more respect paid due by by the state government, by the federal government, depending on, on who the, the land manager is, to a, a tribal sovereign nation. So it is respecting the the legitimacy, the sovereignty of this tribal government as as a co-equal to the state or to the feds, which which is a fantastic kind of reconceptualization of of that relationship where it has not always been at a position of of co-equals. Yeah. I'll I'll just jump in here to say that in Epic's current work in the Jackson Demonstration State Forest, one of our main demands has been that there needs to be a co-management agreement with the local Northern Pomo and Kosuke tribes in the area, because as we're working to reimagine that forest, that indigenous sovereignty and indigenous land management is just such an important piece of it. And the state has been hesitant to enter into an agreement, which I think goes to show just how, like how new these ideas are and how we're still defining them and the state is figuring out, even though it says it wants to create these sorts of agreements, it's it's sort of still figuring out exactly what that looks like and exactly what they're willing, how much power they're willing to give up. The Eco News Report, we're talking about the land back movement with Melody Meyer, a citizen of Pueblo of Laguna and a tribal attorney. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an important point here, too, which is we're in this in-between space where we're we're figuring out what these relationships look like, where we have a, a new proclamation from the governor, an executive order saying that we want to increase co-management. We want to increase tribal authority over historic ancestral lands. But practically, what does that look like? So we are getting to live in that like squishy area where these things are being figured out, which is which is an exciting place to be. 
if not unnerving at times too. I will also say it's not just publicly held lands. It's also private individuals either selling or donating their lands back to the tribes whose land it should be. I think examples of people leaving land to tribes in their will are starting to pop up across the country. I think the U.S. is not that old of a country, and so you don't have to go that far back on the title of any piece of land to find out what tribe had that land stolen from them and and try to figure out how to give it back. Right. I mean, people have have ancestors that they that they can they can trace back to the 1850s, right? This is not that long ago. European yeah. settlement to the North Coast is very, very recent. And so, yes. People were like about to invent the car, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it's not that long ago. <laughs> and, and so actually this idea of private lands can be a way of doing land back too. And in, in normal market mechanisms, we have an example from the Yurok tribe with the Blue Creek acquisition. Melody, do you want to talk about that, or I'm happy to, to say what I know about it, too? Yeah, I think we can both together put it to get a good picture. I understood it as Green Diamond had all of this land in the Yurok's ancestral territory. We're logging the crap out of it. And then the tribe pulled together as much resources as possible, and they worked like for ten over, like over 10 years with Western Rivers Conservancy, they worked with Green Diamond, and they put together all the money that they had from, I think, the Hoopa-Yurok Settlement Act. They had to do like really complex loans through the New Markets Tax Credit loan program, and they had like private foundations donating to it. But they were able to buy back 50,000 acres from Green Diamond. And now, and these areas are like incredibly important, both culturally, spiritually, and ecologically for the Klamath River. So it's just this huge victory. And I think it's a really great example of Western Rivers Conservancy has a lot of experience in doing these rehabilitative like land acquisitions. So they were a great partner for the York tribe to be able to get this much land back. And they're still figuring out like what else can we do so it's it's a really positive example of of the tribe working together with an environmental type of organization yeah fifty thousand acres that's a huge amount of land too matt and i have been fighting on the jackson demonstration state forest again for the last couple of years and that's forty eight thousand acres in mendocino county between fort bragg and willits so the, the idea that someone were to just purchase 50,000 acres and return that to tribal sovereignty, that's so cool to me because that's bigger than this area that like we've just been in a constant fight over. So it it's cool too because then it shows it can be done. And there is always a bit of a proof of concept. And so the Eurox management of the, the Blue Creek acquisition, that gives hope then to folks in Mendocino County perhaps who are looking at the Jackson Demonstration State Forest and wanting to get that land back to Pomo control. Or a smaller example, Epic's also been working on Reservation Ranch in Del Norte County. So Reservation Ranch, this is, as the name suggested, once part of a reservation. It was the Taladani Nation's reservation in the 1860s. Then the reservation was broken up and the land was put into private ownership. It was at the heart of their ancestral territory before. Their ancestral territory was many times larger, many hundreds of thousands of acres larger than this this existing ranch. And we've been trying to get this land back then to the Taladani Nation through 
the resolution of an enforcement agreement brought by the Coastal Commission. Unfortunately, we weren't successful there. Some land is going to likely go back in some form to the Talwa to protect, but not very much of the whole reservation ranch. There's going to be increased public access to portions of this land, but it it is an incomplete solution. And it's one of those things that, like looking at this property, I can't imagine that the river will be whole. I can't imagine that the Talawa will be whole in some sense until we get that land back to them. It's been extremely degraded by the white colonizers who took over the land. And it's been basically in that same family since it was taken over. So it, it just, it feels like such a natural way to both restore the Smith River estuary, the Smith River itself, and restore tribal sovereignty and try to like do better and, and correct some of this history if we could. We, we've talked around this, but I just want to make it explicit. This land was taken in the first place in order to extract natural resources and cause environmental damage. I mean, I know that's not the, the purpose, right? But the logging or the dairy industry or the gold mining, whatever it was, it was some sort of wealth extraction that caused environmental damage. And so as an environmentalist, you have to think about, if you're talking about healing land and, and restoring it, you can't talk about that without thinking about what was necessary in order to cause that to happen. And in California, that's indigenous dispossession and genocide. And so I think, it, it, like you just said, Tom, like it's impossible to imagine some of these places actually being restored, actually being healed without the return of indigenous management and caretakers. And so, so Matt and I, I believe, are on the same page here, um, which is that we want to see this idea of land back and increasing tribal sovereignty over lands, whether it's through co-management agreements, whether it is transferring titles and fee simple to tribes, whatever, as much as we can, as fast as we can, as far as we can. And we want to incorporate that within this idea of what it means to be an environmentalist and what is right for the environment, that this is part and a natural evolution of the historic environmental movement. The historical environmental movement has often focused on protection and preservation of land. This is a form of that. And something that is disappointing to me and something that we as environmentalists need to work on is the history of racism within our movement that has both has erased the history of people on land by pretending that these are just in the state of nature and wild and whatever that didn't recognize that many of these lands that we view as wild, untrammeled by man, were in fact managed by Native American tribes. It's disappointing to me too that we have an existing kind of mistrust of Native American tribes to effectively manage this land. That as as a number of environmentalists have said to me before when advocating for land back, well, aren't you worried that they're just going to build a casino there? No. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not really. If, if it is... If it is, tribes are, are attempting to get back high priority lands to them, often that have a spiritual or cultural connection. No, absolutely not. I'm not worried about that. And also, if there was something built, a casino built, then we're just rectifying for the history of all the rest of colonization that has stripped wealth from these communities in the first place. It is a form of reparation. And so, good. They've earned it. Just, yeah. let them, just let them have it. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, I'm not worried. And, and again, 
I, I think that we need to be conversant with this as as an idea within the environmental movement. And I think that we do well for the environment. We do well for our, our neighbors and our friends who are either enrolled or unenrolled members of, of tribal nations to fight for this as, as part of our movement. If you want to like support or like learn more, it's not like super accurate and I would use it with caution, but there's a, if you Google native land map, you can like see what, whose ancestral territory you're on. If you go to most state parks in California too, they'll have information, usually stuff like history that's given to the park from the tribe, whose land you're on. And I think it makes people uncomfortable because they don't like feeling bad about themselves. But I think it would really help people if they got used to this idea. What's the reality? Like the reality is that tribes were like forced off of their lands and we're now all living on Wiat territory. And I think supporting tribes and their local businesses is really important and supporting the different projects that they're working on, making donations, because right now most tribes are are working off of grant funding, and that can be really hard to use towards land acquisitions because you need grant funding comes with, I'm sure you, you all know, it comes with like specific requirements, specific types of deliverables. So having more... Like we were talking about having a, a stream of income that you can use freely for different types of land acquisitions is really important, and it's something that tribes struggle with a lot. And then lastly, I think people just need to talk to like their racist friends or their racist family members. Like, no, tribes aren't like casino obsessed. Like, tribes don't you know have a magical connection with the forest. Like, it's it's more political than that. I think it's it's, it's important to like realize that native people are like extremely like dehumanized in like a lot of ways and even just like a simple conversation like correcting people when they talk about their stereotypes of of native people it really does go a long way i think in in the culture that we're in now and we're seeing right wing like fascism like coming up so strong in in the moment that we're at unfortunately so it it all it all like ties into tribal sovereignty and, and recognizing tribes as their own native nations. I like the awkwardness that white people feel in land acknowledgements too, because I, I think that it like begs the question of why do you feel awkward when you're like, well, we're on the un- unceded territory of whatever tribe you're on here. We're in the unceded territory that we are tribe. It, it begs the question of like, what are you going to do about it? Right? Like, I, I feel like you are, you if you're feeling awkward about these things, it's because you are acknowledging that there was some deep injustices done and that like you have an obligation as, as like an ethical creature in this world to then do something about that. And so I, I think that there's deep power in land acknowledgement in, in that respect. Yeah. And sort of on the topic of awkwardness, I think it's important, especially as a white person to, watch your language and watch how you talk about that history. I, you know, people will often refer to native people being pushed out of their lands, right? It's like, you wouldn't talk about Ukrainians being pushed out of Eastern Ukraine right now, right? It's there, there's actual violence at the root of these things. And it's like really important to remember that and kind of center it, I think. And then that 
having that as your framework will hopefully lead you to the conclusion that, you know, casinos aren't the worst thing that could happen on land, right? There's there's already a lot of violence that's been done and continuing environmental degradation in a lot of places and that having land back be one of the ways that we fight against that is, I think, necessary. And if this conversation has made you want to take action, one easy way to do that would be to support the Wiat tribe through their honor tax. This is a way to give money back to the Wiat tribe whose lands Epic's offices are on, whose lands my house is on. This is a way to to recognize historic Wiat lands and, and that you're living on them and that these are unceded territories for the Wiat people. So you can find a link to the Wiat Honor Tax on our website and on our show notes. And you can find this show on thelostcoastoutpost.com. So go to the Lost Coast Outpost, click on the show, and you can find a link there. Well, I, I hope that this was an interesting conversation for everyone out there in the listening audience. I had a fun time. Thank you so much to Melody Meyer for joining us and join us again on this time and channel next week for more environmental news from the North Coast of California.